I'm always making sure no adults are sneaking out this time as well. In the book of Peter, first and second Peter, Peter later in his life writes these two letters to the church who is faithfully being and doing what the Lord has called them to do, making disciples and living according to his word. Now, in that, God has commissioned them and called them and spread them out. They are living as what he calls in, in 1 Peter 1, the very first verse, elect exiles, elect exiles. But as they go through life experiencing persecution and hardship that's coming upon them, there becomes this tension in the letter. So in 2 Peter, he addresses this, this real tension, this real struggle of why hasn't the Lord come back? Why hasn't the Lord extinguished evil and held the wicked accountable? Why hasn't he come yet? It's this understanding that the Lord's timing is not matched up with my timing. This is the struggle of the church in the first century, and in our letter this morning of Kaf, it's the same tension that the psalmist is expressing. And I, I want to read for you, I won't give you time to flip there, but I want to read for you 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm just going to read verse 8 through 10 because it's going to pair incredibly similarly and in a similar way to what we read in our psalm letter this morning. In Psalm 119. So listen to this. It's the same tension that we're going to notice that the psalmist expresses uh, in verse 81 in those corresponding eight verses. Peter writes to them, these people struggling of dealing with scoffers who are making statements like, hey, where is the promise of his coming? If your Lord's coming, where is he at? He hasn't come yet. Where is he? They're scoffing at God and they're in the people of God who build their life according to his word, who follow after Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Savior who will come again one day. And Peter writes to them, and he tells them, but do not overlook this one fact, writing to the elect exiles, the believers, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and as a thousand years is as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then he gets into the judgment of God. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The church in the first century drew comfort when it felt like, it, it felt personally, it felt like God was slow. When God seems slow, what should we do? The psalmist in our letter this morning, as we walk through Psalm 119, Hebrew letter by Hebrew letter, these poetic paragraphs called, we call strophes, every one of the eight verses beginning with the same Hebrew letter, the psalmist expresses what the people of God in the first century express. When God's timing does not match up with my timing, when God seems slow, what should I do? When God seems slow, what should I do? In our text this morning of Psalm 119, we're going to notice four next steps, we might call them. It's a sermon of next steps. Four next steps that you and I, regardless of our age, regardless of the storm that we find ourselves in, though the storm that they're experiencing appears to be persecution, what do we do when the Lord's timing does not seem to sync up with our timing? What do you do, church, when the Lord seems slow? Well, turn with me in your Bibles as we notice, first and foremost, in verses 81 through 82, 
that when God seems slow, slow down and talk to him about it. When God seems slow, slow down and talk to him about it. And I'm going to argue as we walk through this. So again, if it would be good in your notes, I didn't give it to you, but just write down 2 Peter 3 because you'll see a multitude of similar themes here as we saw that the Lord gave to his people hundreds of years earlier through the psalmist in Psalm 119. So many echoes resonate back and forth. First and foremost, verse 81 and 82. When God seems slow, slow down and talk to him about it. Let me read for us from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, please do follow along in the Pewback Bible in, in front of you. Verse 81, the psalmist writes, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. And I ask, when will you comfort me? Writing to Yahweh, writing to the Lord. This word translated as longs, the idea is, is to be in, in languish, to languish over something, to tearfully yearn for something, to long for it. He gives two examples of the same word. My soul longs for your salvation. My eyes long for your promise. So the idea is that his eyes are fixed on what? His eyes are fixed on the promise of God given to his people according to the covenant word of God. The Lord has made a covenant with his people. He's made a promise with his people. He's given a word to his people. And the psalmist, in the middle of the storm, when God seems slow, his eyes are fixed forward on the promise to be fulfilled in his life. Deliverance, the salvation, the unity with the Lord as he's going through the storm that he's in. And he's saying, I am so fixed on that, but God, it's been so long that my eyes, I have to tape them open. They're watering. They're becoming dry, bloodshot. They're pulsating. I don't know how much longer I can keep my eyes focused. But he makes a resolve. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. In Matthew 18, we're told that when somebody sins against you, there's a biblical principle that the very first step we ought to do is to go to that person and confront them. If you've been wronged by somebody, another brother or sister in Christ, we are to go to them personally, individually, and, and aim to resolve it, to show them the error, the offense that they've taken against us. Now that principle, though theologically, we know that the Lord does not sin. He cannot sin. He is holy and pure and perfect. In the moments in life when we sense that our timing is not matching up with the Lord's timing or His timing is not matching up with our timing, though we would not accuse God of sin, there's a sense of feeling wrong or feeling abandoned. And we ought to apply that principle that the Lord gifts the church. And that's what the psalmist does. He goes to the Lord. He goes to the Lord. He takes the principle of if somebody wrongs you, you ought to go first to them, not to anywhere else, not to Facebook, not to social media. Don't pick up the phone and call your friends and say, you're not going to believe what happened to me. What they did, we're to go to them, first and foremost, to that person. And that's what the psalmist does, who aims to live by the Word of God, not by bread alone. He goes to the Lord and he makes this statement, Lord, when will you comfort me? That's pretty bold. When will you comfort me? Who is this guy? To speak to Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the one that is 
maintaining his molecules in his body at that very moment. He's his. He's his. What sounds like an offensive statement, when will you comfort me, is on the other side, not a question ever of will you comfort me, but when will you comfort me? What sounds offensive at first, God, when will you comfort me? For you and I, as you go through hardship and trials and adversity for the faith and following after Jesus Christ, the doubt in his mind is not, Lord, where are you? But, Lord, when is your timing going to take place? His confession that, Lord, when will you comfort me is a confession that the Lord can comfort him, that he is a God of comfort, that he will comfort him. What an encouragement to you and I to remember in the context of the storm as he fixes his eyes on his salvation, or as he says in 82, my eyes long for your promise. His question is never in, will God comfort me, but when will God comfort me? What a reminder. What sounds offensive is actually a declaration of faith. We serve the God of comfort. So in seasons of life that come your way, or perhaps you're in the middle of in your life, or you've come through, to remember that we serve the God of comfort. He cares for us in the middle of the storm. He knows exactly where we're at. And it's good to go to Him directly and ask Him this question that He asks. When will you comfort me? God, I know you will comfort me. When will you comfort me? Now, the Lord uses means to comfort His people. He uses His people to comfort His people. Matter of fact, if you as a believer would look through your life, and, and I asked you the question, was there a time where you were going through a hardship where somebody in the body of Christ, a believer, reached out to you to encourage you, to pray for you, to pray with you, and the comfort that brought you, we could be here all week sharing stories of how the Lord has used the bride of Christ to comfort His people. We could share of how the Lord's given godly counselors, or you heard a, a, a sermon at the right time, or you picked up His Word and read it at the right time, and the Lord wove that into your life and comforted you just right at the right time, the right moment. The Lord is not slow as we and some might count slowness. But the Lord in His gift to us, He has given us, the Father and the Son have sent to us the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, He's come and He's called the, the Comforter. In John 14, He's called the, the, the Advocate. The Comforter who comes for us, the Helper, the Counselor. The Holy Spirit, He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. He indwells the body of Christ. He indwells the believer. He is a God of comfort. And the psalmist wisely says, Lord, when will you comfort me? Dear Christian, those who have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, be the Savior and Lord. You have the Holy Spirit, the God of comfort, the comforter in you. And Jesus tells his disciples, it is good for you for me to leave. For I will send to you the comforter, the counselor, the helper. So the Lord knows our human timing, and He knows our human timing rarely matches up to Him. And so who does He send us? He sends us the Comforter. For when you, are, you and I are in the tensions of life that say, Lord, I know You will comfort me. I know there will be an end to this trial, to this temptation I'm, I'm walking in. But I don't doubt that You're the God of comfort. So when, first and foremost, we recognize that when you and I are in hardship, when you and I feel like God is being slow, slow down and talk to Him about it. 
slow down and talk to him about it. We'll go into 83. We notice, secondly, this second next step, that when God seems slow, memorize his word. When God seems slow, memorize his word. Verse 83. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. I don't know about you. Maybe I've not been in East Texas very long, but I cannot relate very well to leaving my wineskin in the smoke. I've never done that. Never done that. A wineskin, what is this? It's this, this, this node, this thing that was used mainly out of my research. I didn't know this off the top of my head, okay? So I'm like, didn't know that either. But it's this thing that they used to carry around oil and uh, precious things, wine and good things like that. And it was incredibly valuable. It was made predominantly out of goatskin. And even though it was valuable and purposeful and good in what it did and what it was, if it was left too close to the fire, it would become charred. It would become dried out. It would no longer be able to, to perform the purpose by which it was designed. It would become useless. And what the psalmist says with incredible vivid imagery is he says to the Lord, he's speaking to the Lord still, he says, Yahweh God, I, I feel like the wineskin of the guy who left it right beside the fire. I feel burnt up, burned out, cracked up. I feel useless, dry. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. I don't know if you've experienced a season like that in your life, but it can feel utterly hopeless. The psalmist doesn't stop there. What does he say? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forsaken your statutes, despite feeling like a grizzled old piece of goat leather. He says, though I feel like this, this is really how I feel right now, I have not forgotten your statutes. I'm not, deter I'm not really that thing. I'm not really this grizzled, blackened piece of goat leather. I, I know I'm not because I have not forgotten your statutes. I've not forgotten your statutes. He has not forgotten in these things. Isaiah 38, the Word of God, it's a, it's a witness forever. Keith, as he walks us through, Lamed is going to jump right off of this incredible purpose of what the Word of God is and how it performs and functions in our life and its nature and its goodness. And his reminder is, even though I feel like this, even though you may seem slow to me, I have not forgotten your statutes. It's, it's harder to forget the things that we practice and take repetitions in, isn't it? Whether it's the athlete or the musician, or whatever it is in the task that you do with your job, the hundreds of hours that you, you spend in your career to begin to perfect what you're doing, to become more effective in what you're doing, what are you doing? You're memorizing things. You're building muscle memory. You're ingraining it so you will not forget it. You're taking repetitions. In body of Christ, that's what we're called to do, to take repetitions in the Word of God, to spend time in His Word, to read it, to listen to it, to, to sing it, and to live it and to walk it out in our daily routines and habits. 
And when we don't, to forgive and to come back. And therein, we practice the opportunities to offer forgiveness. We practice the opportunities to, to, to practice repentance and to seek forgiveness. And to live what it is to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. And that's what the psalmist says, Though I feel like this, I have not forgotten your statutes. Now this man is, is older, yet he's the same man that, that wrote Bet. Where he says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, God. Even though he's older, he has not used that as an excuse to stop hiding the word of God in his heart. He's continued to get repetitions as he's aged in the word of God. So we can never use the excuse that we're too young to capture the word of God, to practice the word of God, to do what the word of God calls us to do. And we can never say on the opposite side that we're too old to do that. We can never do that. A conversation with a college student, and we're talking about this. Actually, at one of our men's tables, as we were gathered together, our, our men will do Thursday morning uh, short-term sprints, the studies together for a couple weeks at a time, five or six weeks. And one of our huddles, we were talking about memorizing Scripture. And one of the college students I was, I was with, he's a great young man of God, he said, you know, it was a lot easier for me to memorize Scripture when I was younger. I was like, man, and like, I'm not old, but I had that feeling like, Really? Like, like you're like 20. Like you, you could quadruple in age and still be alive. Like you, you can't say I'm too old to do that if you can still quadruple your age. But even this man is not too, using the excuse to say I'm too old. I'm too old for that. I've done that in my life. We can never allow that to impact what we do when God seems slow. We must go to His Word to try to memorize His Word with repetition. It may take more work to dig that, that little ravine that we need to, to, to dig to hide God's Word in our heart. But we're still called to dig. When God seems slow, live in such a way that when you come to the, the dry wineskin moments of life, you will not forget His Word. That's the call that God gives us as a church, as a congregation. We're to be committed one to another so that when we come to those seasons of life, when they come upon us in 2019 and 2020, that we know each other well enough and we love each other well enough to remind each other of this, I'm going to help make sure you don't forget the statutes of God. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to cry with you. I'm going to encourage you. And I'm going to, with my eyes and your eyes, look to the Word of God, the statutes of the God who is never truly slow. He does not slow as some count slowness to His promises. What a gift that the Lord has given us in our life. I encourage you as we walk through this Psalm 119 series and the challenge that we've given and wherever you've been on that to pick it up this week. Again, every week is a new week and a new opportunity to read through Psalm 119. Just read through it once. It'll take you about 17 to 20 minutes or so. Just read through it. And then we're, we're praying through the coming psalm. So you'll be praying through Lama, just one verse at a time. Just speak to the Lord about it. Read it and speak to the Lord what comes to your mind. But if I could give you an extra challenge that would come out of this, is if there is one of these strophes, one of these poetic paragraphs, one of these letters that has most resonated with your spirit, that you would say, Lord, I want to make sure I don't forget this. I want to make sure my family does not forget this. I want to make sure I don't forget this when I come through this storm of life. Commit it to memory. Find a strophe, find a letter that you'll say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to work to commit this to memory. 
the next 10 weeks or so that we're still in this book, I'm going to memorize this and just begin reading it. If you read that strophe 10 times a day, five times a day, you will have that down in a matter of weeks, I promise you. And if you don't, there's no money back guaranteed on that. Just do your best. Thirdly, what do we do when God seems slow? We take this step. When God seems slow, rest in his coming perfect justice. That's what Peter told the church. That's what Peter told the elect exiles that were dispersed out. He reminded them of the God's perfect judgment, this burning up of the earth, the burning up of the heavens, the sky, the burning up. It's a purifying language. The idea is that nothing will be left. Everything will be held accountable. Everyone, every work will be exposed. Anything done in darkness will be shown in light. I was able to go golfing recently, and it was so tantalizing as we drove up on this hole. I was with Jerry and all these golf balls, and I was so excited, and yet I realized I could see them because they were burnt up. So they burned out this grass and the cover, and so all these golf balls, dozens and dozens of golf balls that golfers had walked by mere feet away. But when they burned it up, it was exposed. You could see it. But you could see, sadly, then, that many of them were charred. They were not worth picking up. So the psalmist reminds them of the coming judgment that's going to come. Yes, it may seem slow now, but the Lord's perfect justice will come. So when God seems slow, the psalmist reminds them, as did Peter to the church, rest in his coming perfect justice. 84 through 87. Let's read that. How long, he says to the Lord, how long must your servant endure When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commands are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me! They have almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. What appears to be a complaint in verse 84 is an affirmation of, again, God's perfect justice. Just as his statement of saying, God, when will you comfort me, is affirming the fact that God has the ability and power to comfort him, so too in 84, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Is at the same time a confession that, God, you can and you will bring your justice. The tension is the timing. It's not a question of character with God. It's not a question of ability or attributes of God. It's a question of God's timing. The psalmist is, is eager here to lend God a hand. The Lord will execute perfect justice against all who stand against the, the wisdom, the teaching, the Torah, the goodness of God, the good wisdom of God. He will execute, listen, the word promises us, He will execute perfect justice against all who are not holy and in Him. The psalmist does not have a question of ability. It's a wrestling with timing. And as he's going through this storm, again, it's a storm of persecution. There's people who, because they're against the teaching of the Lord, because they're against the Lord, they're against Him who is walking by the hand of the Lord. And what he's doing is he's experiencing the real hardship of adversity, and he's asking God, hey God, I know you're judge, I know you're good, but can you take care of these guys? And he begins to identify the reason why, what they're doing. 
Now, we know God knows all things, don't we? God's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, but He's all-knowing. He knows every aspect. He knows everything that's done in darkness. Everything, every thought, every single thing. God knows it all. So the psalmist knows those that he calls here as the insolent, the proud. He knows judgment is going to come. But he offers him legal assistance. He slides the folder across the table and says, hey, don't, don't miss this one. I know you're not going to miss it. I know you're God, but don't forget this charge. We do that in our life, don't we? When you and I are wronged, when we feel sinned against, when we are sinned against, there's a part of us that says, if I don't get them back, if they die and nothing happens to them, good judge will execute his justice. The psalmist knows that. He identifies several of these charges that are going to come against them. In verse 84, look at that. How long must your servant endure? Will you, when will you judge those who persecute me? The picture is, the longer that God waits, the more justice is going to have to be poured out on the evildoers because the more evil the evildoers are going to do. So he's trying to plead with the Lord. Lord, bring your justice sooner so that they sin less. 85 and 86. So they pursue, and even they put forethought. It's not just that they're doing bad things, but look at the tactics of those who are against him. Look at the tactics of those who are building this storm, this persecution for him in 85 and 86. He says, the insolent, it's not like it's an accident, the insolent, the proud against you, they have dug pitfalls for me. They've thought it out. They went out to the field and set the trap, and they're trying to chase me into it. So it's not just like they're doing bad things, but they have the forethought to do the bad things against you. And their goal seems to be to get me to do what they do. They do not live according to your law. So they're walking by a totally different standards. They're trying to get me to fight fire with fire, but the fire that they fight with is the fire of the pits of hell. It's demonic the way that they fight. They lie, they cheat, they steal. They do all this messed up stuff that I can't do. And I will not do, but I'm tempted to do it right back to him. But I know your justice is good, and your fire is a purifying fire, not a corrupting fire. It's a purifying fire that you're going to use against them. So, Lord of truth, help me. Look what he says in 86. The last two words. Help me. He's overwhelmed. He says, I can't do anything to get back at them with what they're doing to me. So help me. Help me, a two-word prayer. Help me. Help me. There is a wealth of theology hidden in a one-second prayer. Help me. Help me. Think about what's communicated when you and I say to the Lord, help me. You're saying, you are creator. I am creation. This is beyond me. But this is not beyond you. I am overwhelmed, but you are not. Help me. You care, 
You're involved. You're just. And you will bring your justice. Help me. The sermon that we preach in a two-word prayer to the Lord is overwhelming. Help me. If you're like me, that can be your very last prayer. After you've tried everything in the world you know how to do, you've done everything on your own power you can possibly do. And then finally at the end you say, help me. That the Lord would give us an awareness, each of us, at the very beginning to say, help me. And in the middle say, help me. And then truly at the very end when we are completely overwhelmed. Help me. In verse 87, he truly is towards the end of his rope. Look at the statement that he makes. He doesn't know how much more to hold on. I mean, he's been holding on. He's losing this tug of war. It's going through his hands. He's on the very last fibers of the rope as he's holding on, trying to pull against them. And he says in 87, they have almost made an end of me on the earth. They've almost made an end of me on the earth. Whether it's demonic spiritual forces that we spoke about last week that we wage war against, or the unrighteous actions of those who are called the proud, the insolent. Their domain is but ended upon this earth. It will not exceed the earth. Look over to Matthew 10. Look over there real quickly. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 through 28. Matthew 10, 26 through 28. Because the psalmist's confession is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples. The psalmist says, my enemies, your enemies, because they're your enemies, they're my enemies. Not the other way around. But they're coming against me. And it seems like it's a physical type of suffering. Regardless of what it is, he's saying, they're about to end me on the earth. He draws a limit to their abilities. Like, I, may, I really may not live through this, he says. They're about to end me on the earth, very possibly. This could be the end for me. But the limit is on the earth. Look what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10, 26 through 28. This is when he sends his disciples out. This is the middle of his teaching as he's doing so. Before deploying them, look what he says in, in Matthew 10, 26 through 28. He says to his disciples, so have no fear of them. Speaking of those who are opposed, the insolent, you might say. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Similar language. Or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The, the, the judging truth of God's word. And do not fear those who kill the body. That's what the psalmist said a moment ago. They're about to end me on the earth. But Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's not their domain. They're ended. They can only allow to do things on the earth. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, that's a shaking text, right? The worst they can do is kill you. Sign up for that mission trip. So that's all I can do. 
But as Jesus says very literally, because their, their power, their domain is ended upon the earth. He says, but rather have a fear, have a reverent, joyful fear. You serve one who's greater than those on the earth. They relish in their tactics, just like what the psalmist says. But their power has an, a limit. But Yahweh's does not. Jesus says, mine does not. So don't fear those who can only kill the body, but, but rightfully fear the one who is above all. What is communicated in this same prayer of admonition that the psalmist gives? Help me. When they come back from their sentencing, or they're, they're being sent out in Matthew 10, it's the same idea. Lord, help, help me. Look, look what happened. Look what, look what we did. Look what happened. And the same statement is this given. Do you remember what I said earlier? That's, that's who we are. Why are you shocked? Help me. So God, when we feel overwhelmed, whether it's in the context of sickness or near death, whatever takes place, or we're just overwhelmed in a situation, we need God's wisdom. The prayer, God, help me, is unbelievably wise. And we ask, Spirit of God, would you remind us of this prayer in our daily lives? So let our wits end in the time of failing health. Whatever would come into our life be a reminder to go to the Lord who cares deeply about us and call out to Him on a regular basis, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Fourth, when God seems slow, this is the final verse, verse 88. When God seems slow, assess your primary purpose. When God seems slow, assess your primary purpose. He says, in your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Now, the psalmist is intimately familiar with every aspect of the trial that he's been in. He knows the temptations that come in that trial to want to fight fire with fire. He knows every part of the storm, but he knows every part of the goodness of the, the hesed, the, the covenant faithfulness, the mercy of God. He knows that God is the God of life. And he asked God, in your steadfast love, Lord, give me life. Let the trial come to an end. Please let it come to an end and give me life. Have you ever heard of the negotiator's prayer? The negotiator's prayer. You heard that? It's been given in a multitude of places. You've probably seen it in movies. God, if you will just this, I will do this. The negotiator's prayer. God, I don't think I'm going to make it, but if you help me make it, oh, you just don't wait. Don't, you can't wait to see what I'm going to do for you, God. It's the negotiator's prayer. And the response ought to be, what are you going to do if you're given life? What the psalmist does is he doesn't say what that person is confessing is that the life that they lived up to that point where it seems like their time on the earth is about to end, their time, their purpose was not for the things of the Lord. That's why it's a negotiator's prayer. And it assumes that God needs us. You can't do it without me, God. Give me more life and I'll do the thing you really need me to do. Isn't that what we're saying? It's a confession of sin. It's a confession that my purposes in life have not been in line with your purposes. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a negotiator's prayer. But that's not what the psalmist prays. The psalmist doesn't say, give me life so I can begin to do your, life, your will for my life, that I can live in the goodness of your wisdom and your teaching, your Torah, your good teaching, your merciful word. 
He doesn't say, give me life so I can start doing that. He gives the idea of give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Give me life, God, so I can keep on doing what I've been doing for you. Lord, I know if I die, I'll, I'll be with you in glory. I know that, but I want more time. Allow me more lines. It's an, it's an actor asking the Lord, the writer, to give him more lines on this earth. I don't want my part to end for you. I want to keep doing what I've been doing. So please let the storm end because I think the storm's going to kill me. But I want to keep going for you. Allow me to keep doing the testimonies. This is all through the Psalms. You notice that? Look back in verse 81. He's asking the Lord for permission to continue doing what he's been doing. But that requires what most translations translate right to the point of revive me. He says, in your steadfast love, give me life. And other translations take it and just get right to the point. God, revive me so that I may keep on keeping on. I can keep the testimonies of your mouth. Back in 81, he, he has been hoping in the Lord's word. It's already what he's doing in the storm. He has been hoping in the Lord's word. Verse 82, he has been longing for the promise of God. Verse 83, he has not forgotten the Lord's statutes. 84 through 87, he has been enduring and living by the precepts of the Lord. So his request to God, when God seems slow to end the storm, is that God would give him life so that he continue, can continue on in the purpose by which God has given him. Church, the purpose that God has given you, here's the purpose for your life, is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. That is our purpose in life. The Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's what Stephen was communicating in our family worship seminar. That's your purpose in life. So when life begins to seem slow, when God's timing begins to not match up with our timing, use it as a moment to stop and look at your purposes by which you've lived your life at that moment. And can we say like the psalmist, Lord, give me life so I can keep on doing what I've been doing. Unashamed for your glory on this earth in my relationships and my habits. Or would you make a negotiator's prayer? God, give me life so I can totally change my purposes because they have not been for your good and your glory and abiding in your word, your covenant promises. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. I hope that that is an unbelievable encouragement to you. The psalmist surrenders himself and reaffirms his purpose to keep the testimonies of the Lord's mouth. For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death, his time on this earth ends. And he gets to go continue on in that same purpose, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But God, if you give me a little more time, I want to do that here on the earth too. What a prayer for us as a church. God, if you give us one more week, we want to glorify you and enjoy you in our relationships, in our hobbies and our time, and with our talents, and our energies. 
We want to glorify you and enjoy you here on the earth because you're good. Even, Lord, when you seem slow, help us to remember that you're not. God, when we begin to feel as though you're slow, would you help us to assess our purposes? That's cough. Next step. In a sermon of next steps, I have three more next steps for you. Three more next steps. Points of application, we might say, that we can take out this morning. Step number one, of the four steps, this is an assessing of the previous four components that we've discussed in this sermon of when God seems slow. Which one strikes you most? Which one of those four does the Spirit of God use to, to stick out in your mind the most? To say, you know what, this step right here, this is what I need to do. I need to stop and reassess my priorities, my purposes. I need to hide God's Word in my heart. What, what is it for you? And, and write that down. Don't be ashamed to write that down right now. We're on your way home. Take a moment to reassess those. Lord, which one of those is most poignant for me to address today? Today, this Lord's Day, this Sunday, as we gather. But secondly, we're quick to recognize when God seems slow to us. But is there an area of my life where, almost in a joking way, I must sure seem slow to God? Or my timing sure is probably not matching up with His timing in this component of my life. What, what, what would that be? What is that? And for most of us, myself included, we look and say, well, what part of my life does not probably seem slow to God? Is there an area of your life you look at and say, you know what, I, this, this is the part I just need to talk to the Lord in. I need to get help. I need to share this, confess this with a brother or sister in Christ to pray with me and walk with me. In. And, and thirdly, how sweet is it? Truly, we finish on this good point. How sweet is it to have a relationship with the Lord who slows down to care for us and our burdens? The Lord deeply cares for you. He cares for you in your burdens. He cares for you in, in your storms. He cares for you in the seasons of life when, when He seems slow to your timing. He cares. That's the Lord that we worship. That's the Lord that we know. He is God, and He is worthy of your worship. Would you stand with me as we sing to our King?